Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to Anglo-Saxon England, episode 12, The Mercian Supremacy. We left the situation last time with a brief period of civil war that brought to the throne of Mercia a young prince called Offa, of the line of Penda's brother, Eoa. His predecessor had been able to claim a degree of dominance over the kingdoms south of the Humber, but all that was now gone. Or Mercian control over East Anglia and the East Saxons, anyway. And in Kent, Aethelbert II had re-established the line of Oisuch, son of Hengist, independent of Mercian control. Wessex was an interesting case. Between the two kingdoms to the west, in modern-day Somerset and Gloucestershire, was an area the control of which flip-flopped between the two. And under Aethelbold, Mercia had dominated. But in fact, Wessex held the older claim. And when Aethelbold died at the hands of his bodyguards, 
the new King of Wessex, Coonwolf, just moved straight back in. And of course no one south of the Humber managed to tell Northumbria what to do, despite the fact that the stability of rulers they'd enjoyed was most definitely now a thing of the past. Offa was every bit as aggressive and ambitious as Aethelbald, but his career allows him to lay claim to being the greatest and most magnificent king before Alfred, and he was to prove that he had a grander and a wider vision than Aethelbald, and even than Wolfhera. The question facing him was whether he could succeed where Wolfhera and Aethelbald had promised, but really failed in the end to fully deliver. It would also have been lovely to know what Bede would have thought of Offa, but sadly the Venerable One has now shuffled off his mortal coil, and it is painfully obvious how much our knowledge and understanding suffers as a result. There is no great Mercian chronicler to chart the career of Offa. We have to piece the story together from letters, from charters, the odd snippet in religious tracts and the lives of saints, and smatterings of information from archaeology. What this means is that the chronology and order of Offa's career is a little obscure in places. But then, a spot of uncertainty is part of the weft and warp of the Dark Ages. Offa came to the throne in 757. There is little doubt that he was determined to re-establish and extend Mercian influence. It appears that his attention was turned first to Kent. There, Aethelbert reigned, probably in conjunction with his brothers. But by the time of Aethelbert's death, there was no sign of his brothers, and it's quite clear that charters were being referred to offer for approval. We don't know how it happened, whether through a battle or just by using the diplomatic powers of applying pressure. But for a period of 14 years, Offer effectively ruled in Kent. Any other power in Kent disintegrated. There appeared to be a number of kings and sub-kings that are referred to throughout the period. One chap even calls himself King of Canterbury. I may call myself in future King of my shed and issue passports and stamps. The other significant thing is that these ephemeral kings were no longer part of the ancient royal house of Kent, descended from Oisuk, son of Hengist. Offa had seen to it that this potential rallying cry was now removed. But in fact, that wasn't the end of the story in Kent. No one likes to be told what to do, especially by someone with a brummy accent. And so it was with the men of Kent, or the Kentish men, not being from Kent, I don't quite understand the sensitivities around this Kentish men or men of Kent thing. Or even if it matters. So if you're from Kent, let me know. But, as a little digression for those of you who don't know Kent, I am told that who or where you live in Kent has an impact on which way round it is. So, you are either a Kentish man or Kentish maid, or a man or maid of Kent. One story has it that if you live east and south of the River Medway, then you're a man of Kent. The other tradition adds that this is the old dividing line between the Jutes, who are the men of Kent in the east, and the Saxons, who are the Kentish men. Who knows? There are a variety of other interpretations, but the long and short is that I'm told that the men and maids of Kent consider themselves to be significantly butcher than the Kentish men and Kentish women on account of having told Billy the Conk in no uncertain terms in 1067 that he needed to give them their traditional rights or they'd kick his backside. Whereas the other lot just rolled over, 
Now I just put that little local wrinkle in front of you and have no more comment to make. Anyway, we were on Brummy accents. About this time, after Offer had established his control in Kent and snuffed out the line of Oisuk, the Archbishop of Canterbury died in 765 and a new man was appointed, a local man of Kent called Janebert. We know very little about him, but it appears from some surviving letters that he was not on good terms with Offer. It is entirely possible that we are reading way too much into this, but it could be that Janebert was a Kentish patriot, or patriotic Kentishman, or whatever. He didn't like the Mercians. It appears that Offer took the approach that he had ruled through local rulers, since a new man appears as king at this time, who shall be called Egbert, because that was his name. Egbert appears to have lived on sufferance for the first ten years of his reign. There is a delightful charter, which gives us a glimpse into Egbert and Offa's feelings. As far as Offa was concerned, King Egbert was a man with no bacon, a cipher there to do his bidding. As far as Egbert was concerned, Offa was a tyrant. He, Egbert, was the true king, and his mate, Janebert, thought so too. Like a naughty kid... Egbert pushed things as far as he could to find out where the boundaries of his authority and offers lay. So he issued a grant of land, without getting it signed off by the boss first. Offer found out and came down on him like the proverbial ton of bricks. He revoked the charter, a brutal and forthright exercise of authority. The revocation of the charter survives, and the wording goes that it was not right for a man to grant away land which his lord had given him, without his lord's assent. Ouch. From that point, if not before, Egbert was an enemy of offers. And in 776, Egbert came out with it and asserted his authority, and the result was, of course, predictable. Offer came with an army to crush him. And in 776, then, there was a battle at a place in Kent called Otford. And that is literally all we know. We don't really even know who won. But significantly, Offer appeared to have no authority in Kent for ten years until the death of Egbert in 779, since Egbert happily issues his own coins and charters without any reference to his boss. So by the looks of things, Egbert had rediscovered his bacon. But if you thought this might be a new beginning for Kent, you would be sadly mistaken. It turned out to be a false dawn. It's true that he was succeeded as King of Kent by a rather obscure figure called Aelmund. Aelmund may have been a West Saxon, actually, since his son would become a super-successful King of Wessex. But the point is that Aelmund did not last long as King of Kent. By 785, Offa had cleared out any pesky little kings and ruled direct until his death in 796. And this is effectively the end of Kent's independence. After Offa died there was another attempt to break away by a man called Eadbert Prain. He lasted three years until the King of Mercia came down, burned Kent, blinded Prain, and cut his hands off. And that was that, the end of Kent, or at least the end of Kent as an independent kingdom. Kent would still have a boss, because after all, everyone needs a boss, don't they? You can't have enough bosses. A boss a day keeps the doctor away but Kent's local boss would become an alderman, not a king. Which is the same approach our offer took to Mercia. Now, I am guilty, very guilty, 
of casually referring to Mercia as though it were one place, as though it was all integrated and centralised. Though in my defence we did talk about this a few episodes ago, that Mercia sat in the middle of a complex bunch of tribes and petty kingdoms, as evidenced by that most delightful of Anglo-Saxon documents, the tribal hydage. I am sure you have been wearily shaking your head in despair at my casual and cavalier approach to the history of the Mercian people. You will have shouted at your MP3 player, calling on the gods of the Huissa to rise from their mead hall and visit their vengeance upon me in my shed. Well, the gods of the Huissa had better get on with it, because although I am, of course, truly sorry, the gods of the Huissa have now run out of time. Because under offer, sub-kings disappear PDQ pretty damn quick. Let us return to one Aldred, a man who considered himself to be king of the Huissa, along with his brothers Aenbert and Uhtred. Aenbert had no pretensions to independence, don't get me wrong. He was duly subservient to offer like all his forebears had been since Pender had wandered along and made it clear that this was the way it was going to work. But he was very keen on the K-word, but Offa considered him to be no such thing, and he styled him as Dux, in Latin, Duke, or Alderman. So under his, Aenbert's successors, this became way less of an issue. There were now simply Aldermen of the Huissa, and that was the way it was. Now also in my defence, the Huissa were probably the last of the group of kingdoms that had sat around the core of Mercian power. But Offa completed the process. The Magenciter, the Rostenciter, the Huissa, the Thomasiter, the Middle Angles. Their statuses as non-royal regions of the Greater Mercia are now all confirmed and finalised if there was any remaining doubt. Which brings us, as night follows day, to the South Saxons. Now, a few of you have complained bitterly. One of you has complained mildly that in my regnal lists I failed to add the South Saxon kings. Well, the truth is that after getting off to a flyer in the 5th century under Ayla, the South Saxons had retired behind the weald and just got on with being South Saxon. Every so often some dude from Wessex such as Cade Waller would appear and do a bit of ravaging and all, but eventually they'd leave. Politically, it was a bit of a mess or alternatively maybe a land of milk and honey, because there was no one madly ambitious bloke trying to get everyone to go and beat everyone else up. Sussex wasn't the biggest place by any means, and yet it was still split up between several rulers. I have an image of hairy Saxons chilling on hammocks along the sands at East Wittering or something like that. Well, Offa put a stop to any of that. Some of the South Saxons tried to stand up for themselves. The men of Hastings, for example, arranged themselves for battle but against the combined might of Mercia, they had about as much chance as a bun left alone with my dog. Beyond that, the extent of Offa's dominance becomes a little more problematic. Nothing survives of the relationship between the East Saxons and Mercia, so we don't know, though we might guess, that since Offa used their province of Middlesex as his own personal backyard, we maybe have a hint. And it could also be that Offa used Ipswich as a royal mint, so the odds are that the East Saxon kings were bowing and scraping along with the best of them. It's similar with East Anglia. We can't be sure. Nothing comes out of East Anglia. Still doesn't, really. That's probably because, as I now suspect, 
the East Anglians are not really sure the rest of us are here anyway. And when they do notice us, they're not really sure what the point of our existence is. But again, there's the odd straw in the wind, or sugar beet in the wind. There is one king mentioned, a man called Ethelbert. He is mentioned because in 794, Offa caused him to be beheaded. Traditionally, if possibly unfairly, this is seen as an unfriendly thing to do. So we might guess that Ethelbert had made the mistake of finding a backbone and raising his head against mercy and supremacy and getting it cut off as a result. So again, the balance of probability is that East Anglia was also ground under the Mercian boot. Northumbria is relatively easy to talk about, although odd. Now it would look like a bit of a gimme that if Offa had managed to cause all this chaos and obedience south of the Humber, north of it would be a slam dunk. The old Northumbrian stability Bede had gloried in of the late 7th century was dead and gone. And the regnal list for Offa's period looks more like a pizza than a list. But clearly they make him tough up there. Offa very clearly never managed to establish himself. Having said that, in 792 he married Elflade, the daughter of the king of Northumbria. And you have to think Offa would have made some political capital out of it. But seriously, we see no more. There are no Northumbrian charters countersealed by Offa, or which refer to Offa. Maybe the biggest bone of contention over which the dogs of history have fought is about Wessex and its relationship with Mercia. The king of Wessex was a man called Coonwolf, who came to his throne in the same year, 757, that Offa came to his. As I said at the start of today's Matherings, in the bun fight that accompanied Offa's arrival, Coonwolf's immediate action was to take back control of the Upper Thames that Aethelbald had wrested from him. Clearly, Offa was not the kind of bunny to be happy with such a thing. There would be little doubt that he'd have pushed and tested the independence of Wessex as hard as he could. But there's not a lot of evidence that he succeeded. Until 20 years later, in 779, when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us, This year, Coonwolf and Offa fought near Bensington, and Offa took the town. Still, we have no evidence that Wessex's legs then danced to the Mercian tune. But then, in 786, we get the oldest piece of prose poetry in Old English that was written down, and it concerns Coonwolf, and I'm going to tell you all about it. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is often a pretty laconic piece of work. You know the sort of thing, like the entry in 645. Chenwall was driven from his kingdom by King Pender. That's it. A bit of background would have been useful, but no. Or indeed the entry for 776 about the Battle of Otford, which said, The Mercians and the Kentish fought at Otford. That's your lot, not even a mensch about who won. But in 757, suddenly it goes potty and gets all excited with a long piece of prose which we discussed a few episodes ago as being an example of lordship and the bond between the lord and his man. Suddenly, from being a chronicle about God, the odd battle and lights in the sky, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle sings about a story which has violence, bravery, loyalty and even sex. It bears all the hallmarks of a story that has been told in the halls of the great, an oral tradition that someone had decided to write down. 
Now, it's always nice to hear these things spoken properly, so I found something on the interweb on YouTube from a chap whose permission I was unable to ask, it has to be said, so hopefully he doesn't mind. And there's a link on the website. Anyway, you can hear it after the credits, if you so desire. Anyway, the political significance was that in 756, the crown of Wessex had passed to an aetherling called Sigebrutha. But there was another aetherling in the wings who thought he was a better aetherling, and his name was Cunewulf. Cunewulf got the leading councillors of the king to back him, and he drove Sigebrutha out, where he ended up being stabbed in the wastes of the weald by a cowherd. That's in Sussex. Wastes of the weald isn't a euphemism for anything. So, Cunewulf became King of Wessex, as we said, in 757, same year as Offa. Fast forward 30 years to 786. For the last 30 years, there was at least one person or faction that remembered the death of Sigebrut. His brother Cunaherde was one of them. So as you'll hear if you listen, Cunaherde surprised and killed Cunewulf while he was visiting his fancy woman in Merton. But the king's men avenged him and Kunnaherde also ended up in the dustbin of history, along with a bunch of loyal and brave and also dead thanes. The result was a new king in Wessex, a man called Beotric. Here was Offa's chance to gain influence and control in Wessex, a new inexperienced kid on the block who would be overawed and impressed by Offa's magnificence and power. Offa didn't go for brute force, he went for the iron fist in the velvet glove approach offering alliance and a marriage to the great man's daughter, Headbur. Whether or not he liked the situation he was in, Beotric accepted the offer, and Wessex was a partner of Mercia from that point forward. When I say partner, what I mean, of course, is junior partner. In fact, Beotric was to prove immensely useful to offer. Offer had a problem. At the time, he was trying to snuff out the fires of revolt in Kent, with Egbert's successor, Eelmund. Eelmund had a son, Egbert, and Egbert needed to go, because while he was still there, Kent would have a symbol, a man to follow. What we don't know, incidentally, is whether Eelmund and Egbert were by background Kentish or West Saxon. Now, obviously, Lizzie, our current queen, is figured to be a descendant of Cherditch, like every West Saxon aetherling. Well, if Eelmund and Egbert were Kentish then I have bad news for her. But that will be for some future time. Anyway, the point is that Beotric helped offer out and helped him push Egbert out and snuff out the spirit of revolt in Kent. So essentially, to sum up, when all said and done, when the ninth stitch has saved the time, offer by the 780s was without doubt the king of the dung heap. It would take him a while to get there, 25 years or more, but as Disraeli was to celebrate in 1868, he had without doubt climbed to the top of the greasy pole. Which is where we get the debate about Offa's ambition and world view. Was he a traditional hegemon, Bretwalder, Primes and Pares, the Mercian king who'd managed to impose himself on all the rest? Or did he have a wider vision, one kingdom of the English, united in the face of the hostile Celts? By and large, Offa called himself Rex Merciorum, King of the Mercians. And this defines him as a successful Mercian warlord, making the English south of the Humber dance to his tune rather than anything more. But his predecessor, Aethelbald, had made the odd claim for more. 
the best example being a description on a charter which described him as Rex non solum marcesium sed et omnium provincerum generali nomibe sutangli decuntur, which is quite a complicated title, king not just of Mercia, but of all the lands described as the land of the South English. Generally, Offa seemed to have aimed lower, though I doubt modesty was Offa's strong suit. And as I say, he usually called himself simply Rex Merciorum. But in 774, we suddenly get a couple of documents where he calls himself Rex Anglorum and Rex Totius Anglorum Patriae, King of the English, King of all the fatherlands of the English. Is this a small sign of the more ambitious, visionary offer? Should it be offer, not Alfred, who we think of as the father of the nation? The answer appears to be no. Both these charters are slightly problematic in that they are later reproductions. We don't have the originals. There is something of a game that religious houses play, which I'm sure will shock you. They made up charters sometimes to prove title to land that they wanted. Usually not being quite barefaced enough to just steal land, normally just to put a legal basis behind land they've held for a while anyway. And so, the bigger the grander, the charter, and the granter of the charter and the land, the better. Having said that, there's no particular reason to doubt these two, but they are outliers. Everything else we know about Offa suggests that he is king of the Mercians, and that's the way he thinks. It's useful to think about Offa's reign, though, in the context of one of the greatest figures in European history, the Emperor Charles the Great, otherwise known as Charlemagne. Charlemagne is, of course, a quite exceptional figure, whose long reign transformed the map of Europe and in 800 created the first run at a new Western Roman Empire that we've come to know as the Holy Roman Empire. Now, Offa was dead by the time Charlemagne was announced by Pope Leo in Rome in 800, but well before that, Charlemagne had made his court the model for any other kings to emulate and envy. As Offa's power grew, he looked over the channel and had the nerve to consider himself Charlemagne's equal. There is some support for his view. Lord knows how anyone makes such an odious comparison, but scale of ambition might just be one such benchmark. Into which argument, then, you'd roll the earthworks that Offa seems to have commissioned and built all along the Welsh border. Of course, we know it's there. I know it's there because I've walked on it a few times, though truth to say, in all but a few sections, it's pretty easy to miss. But the evidence for it being built by Offa relies on Alfred's 9th century biographer, Asser. Asser suggests that the wall ran all along the 135 miles of the Welsh-English border, though the modern historian views this claim with suspicion and distrust, and identifies a segment 80 miles long. But if Asser is correct, it is longer than either the Antonine Wall or Hadrian's Wall, though of course, unlike Hadrian's Wall, the building is not made of stone. There are other ways in which Offa emulated Charlemagne. Like Charlemagne, Offa clearly understood the value the church could bring in building his prestige. When two papal legates visited the church in 787 in Anglo-Saxon England, Offa made sure he was part of the whole tour and bigging up process, making sure that he was centre stage. The laws and canons the legates came to reinforce included the status of the king as the Lord's anointed, which of course was most welcome. 
He made sure he very conspicuously lived up to the model of the Christian king, in ways his predecessors had not. So while Ethelbald had laid himself open to accusations of non-fornication and had blatantly had multiple wives and mistresses, Offa was a model of monogamy. In fact, his wife, Kunathrutha, regularly witnesses charters. She seems to have been unusually prominent at court, and throughout Offa was determined to demonstrate the legitimacy of his and Kunathrutha's reign and line. And then there was Offa's big project, the idea of an archbishopric in the Mercian heartlands. Again, Offa understood the benefits of having the church under his control and access to the administration it could provide. It had always been the case that the Archbishop of Canterbury was the primate for all the English bishops. But as we know, Offa and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Jane Burt, really did not see eye to eye. The answer was obvious to Offa. Turn the Bishop of Lichfield in the Midlands into an Archbishop, independent of Canterbury for the greater glory of God, and of course Mercia. Offa was able to persuade the Pope of his case. It was short-lived, it had to be said, and did not long outlast Offa. But in the Archbishopric of Lichfield, Offa had made his point, and he could get what he wanted. Another example of emulation to a degree came from the coinage. During Offa's reign, Skeaters began to follow the Frankish model much more closely. They were flatter and thinner. The name of the king began to appear on the coin, as kings like Offa realised this was a great promotional opportunity. Uniquely amongst the Anglo-Saxons, at least, Queen Cunothruth even appears on one coin herself. Offa also began to control the mints. They became royal mints, whose output was controlled centrally by the king. There are obvious advantages to being able to control quality and during Offa's reign the estimate is that two million skeata were produced for him. But there were murkier reasons to control the minting process. It was a moneymaker in more ways than one. As coins became smaller and thinner, higher quality, but nonetheless containing less bullion, coins were recalled which had a higher total bullion content. And the crown pocketed the difference. It's inflation, essentially. Nice one. Now, it might have been that Offa would have done all this anyway. But there was a model for him over in Francia from Charlemagne. And by the 790s, Offa ruled a vast territory by Anglo-Saxon standards and had established a court at Tamworth that was in all probability a lot more sophisticated than the traditional Anglo-Saxon mead hall and in all likelihood felt very much on the same level as his Frankish counterpart. And in fact, there was a little exchange which kind of demonstrates this and also demonstrates that whatever offer might think, Charlemagne seriously did not think the same way, and considered Mercia to be no more than a pimple on the buttock of empire. Essentially, Charlemagne had noticed offer, which it has to be said is compliment enough for any pimple. And so he got in touch, seeking the hand in marriage of offer's daughter for his son. Offer proudly responded, by asking for the same in return, Charlemagne's daughter for his own son, Ecfrith. Well, sacred blue, governor, you'd have thought he'd suggested an orgy, with a bit of non-fornication thrown in for good measure. Furious at the pretension of the nasty little man, 
Charlemagne broke off all discussions. So that's fine. Offa might see himself as Charlemagne's equal, but the Frank did not see it the same way, frankly. Much has been made of the fact that relationships were re-established, that a trade conversation ensued, that a magnificent Hunnish sword was given as a gift by Charlemagne, and that he addressed Offa as dearest brother. Much has been made to try to prove the case that Offa was indeed seen by contemporaries as the equal of the great Charlemagne. But none of this was an admission of equality, and both men would have recognised the brutal, coded diplomatic language. The sword was a typical gift of a lord to a retainer to a lesser. While Charlemagne in the letter called himself King of the Franks and Lombards and Patrician of the Romans, all Offa got was King of the Mercians. The message was clear enough. Nonetheless, Offa came as close as any in Europe to challenging the glory of Charlemagne. The extent and manner of his rule was closer to United England than any that had gone before. The nature of his rule was a demonstration that the Anglo-Saxons were emerging from their relative isolation and becoming part of the European mainstream. Negotiating with the Franks, corresponding with the papacy, holding court with pomp and ceremony, just like a regular continental monarch. In one other respect, Offa demonstrated the lessons he'd learned from Charlemagne, in the importance he ascribed to his dynasty, and the lengths he therefore went to to make sure his descendants succeeded him. Here we're frustrated to an extent by the veil of our ignorance of the detail of Offa's rule, because we have some very clear indications of the amount of pain Offa went to to make sure Ecfrith, son of himself and Cunothruth, succeeded, and not some other random aetherling from some other branch of the family. We have a couple of indications of the paranoia and the brutality that Offa was prepared to carry out to make sure that Ecfrith ascended to the Mercian throne and leadership of the Sutangli. The first was that Ecfrith was crowned during Offa's lifetime, crowned as co-ruler by Offa's shiny new Archbishop of Lichfield. Now this is super unusual. It's very much an assertion of the dynastic rather than tribal principle. So, rather than the wise men and councillors agreeing who was the best candidate to succeed the previous leader. It's also very consciously a ceremony that emphasised the theocratic nature of kingship on the Frankish model and even like the Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople. The other glimpse we get behind the curtain comes from a letter Alcuin wrote to a Mercian thane from the court of Charlemagne. He referred to, quote, How much blood the father shed to secure the kingdom for his son. We can't exactly see what happened in Mercia during Offa's reign to prompt this comment, but it clearly wasn't pretty. Like most other Anglo-Saxon kings, Offa no doubt had to work hard diplomatically and militarily to sniff out and snuff out a number of pretenders in courts around the Heptarchy. And of course, one of them he couldn't reach was the aforesaid Man of Kent, Egbert, son of Eilmund, safe from his clutches ironically at the court of Charlemagne. So all the more important that Offa had done everything he could to make sure his son was secure on the throne. Offa died in July 796, a ruler whose name should really be written more brightly and powerfully in English history, but our view of whom is simply too obscured by the veil of the Dark Ages. He would have been relieved to know that his son Ecfrith 
succeeded to the throne. But the start of Offa's dynasty, it was not to be. By December of that very same year, Queen Cunathrutha was grieving at her son's deathbed, and the throne passed to Chenwulf, a distant aetheling from another branch of the royal dynasty. As Alcuin wrote to the Bishop of Leicester, You know how well the illustrious king prepared for his son to inherit his kingdom, as he thought. But as events showed, he took it from him. Man plans, but God decides. With which portentous words, it seems like an appropriate place to finish this week's episode. Next time, the Mercian supremacy will continue, but the question is, for how long? Thanks, then, to all of you for listening, for all your comments on iTunes and Facebook and the website and all that sort of stuff, and the very best of luck until we speak again. This is a reading in Old English that I found on YouTube. It was the only one I could find, so the quality isn't brilliant. Uh, But nonetheless, it's rather fun to hear it. Don't even know who the copyright holder is, but what I've done is sent him a note and put a link on my website so you can see the original uh, if you like. Plus, you can go to the Anglo-Saxon England website or link to it through the History of England website, um, and I've put the text from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So, enjoy. Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, 755. Wolf and Kühne Heir Cunewulf benam suge bruchtis riches, and wet sex na weeten, barun ruchtum dadun, butun hamtun shire. And he have the za of the oslog on a alderman the him lengest wunode, and he en za Cunewulf on andred adravda, and he thar wunode, of that yena an swan of stang at privates floden and he urag dona alderman cumbran, and the cunewulf oft miklum je feuchtum feucht with bret walum, and um um an and thriti wintra, das the he reja hafta, he wolda a draven ana adeling, se was cunehered haten, and the cunehered was das suge bruchtes brother, and the ja ashoda he dona cuning lutle werda on the wheat on Merantuna, and hine thar berad, and on a boor uten by eoda, ar hine, the men on funden the midam cuninga waren, and tha on yeat se cuning that, and he on that duru eoda, and tha on he en licha hina werida, of he on dona adeling lucuda, and tha utrasda on hine, and hine miklum ye woundode, and he all on dona cuning waren feuchtende, or that he a hinna of slagene hafton. And tha on nas weefes ye barum, on funden nas cuning is deignas da un stillnesse, and tha vider urnan, swa welch swa dona jara werth, and radost. And jara se adeling, ye welchum feuch and fjorch ye beed, and here a nanny hit ye fidgia nolda. A kia simlia feuchtende warren, oth here alle lagan, buten anum brutishum yisle, 
and self sweeter he wound that was. Da on Morgiana, ye heard them that cunning is famous, the him beaften waren that's a cunning of slacken was, da ridden here didder, and his alderman Osridge, and we felt his thane, and the men the he beaften him laved ar, and on Adeling on that a bury met on that secuning of slagging lad, and that gar to him to be locken have done, and that that to eodon. And that ye bed him, he him, ye are agin a dome, they us on Londes, if he a him thus reaches Uthon, and him custon that ye are magas him midwaran, that the him from Noldon. And da quadan here, that him nanig mag leovra nara zona yere davord, and he navra his banan for here Noldon. And da budon here, yere magum, that here he sunda from Eodon. And he quadan that that ilke yere ye feirum ye bodenwara. The ar midam kiningawaron, the quedon here, that here here thus ne on munden, don ma the eora ye feiren the midam kininga of slagenawaron. And here thar um the gart of feirtendawaron, of that here thar in the fulgon, and don adeling of slogon, and the men the him midwaron, ala butonanum and he his fjörg jenerede, and they are he was oft ye wounded. And the kune wolf rixod wintra, and his leech leith at winter jestra, and as adelingas at ashen münster, and here a rücht fadrinkin gath to kerditsa. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.